This episode of The Dig is sponsored by our Patreon supporters and by Oxford University Press, which publishes a lot of excellent work, including books by guests on this show. Today, I want to tell you about The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity by Tom K. Wong. Wong analyzes more than 30,000 congressional votes in immigration policy, examining the increasingly partisan divide and the role played by immigrant residents in shaping policy. It also provides an excellent, concise overview of American immigration politics and makes for a handy reference guide. The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity. You can save 30% on Oxford University Press politics books with the coupon code DIG30, that's D-I-G-30. Some exclusions apply. Visit oup.com backslash academic. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Last week, we tried out doing a second shorter episode on the French election. People liked it, so we're going to keep that up most weeks. Though that's contingent, of course, upon listener support continuing to make that financially viable. So thank you in advance. My guest today is Dean Baker, co-director of the Center for Economic Policy, We're going to discuss Trump's tax proposal and how Republicans only seem to care about deficits and debt when they're trying to cut social welfare programs. Baker is the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. You can find that for free online. Dean Baker, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me on. Um, Last week, Trump released a proposed tax plan that would redistribute a lot of money from regular Americans to extremely rich people like himself, um, though it was actually just a one-page sheet of paper with some bullet points on it. Can you walk me through what his proposal entails? I can give you some of the main parts. Again, we don't have even an outline, really, because some of the key parts aren't, aren't aren't on his one page, so like he talks about lowering, uh, having fewer tax brackets, but it doesn't give us the income cutoffs. But let me just give you a few of the things that we can say for certain. One is he wants to lower the corporate income tax rate from the current 35% to 15%, which is obviously a very large reduction. There would probably be widespread agreement, certainly among economists, on a lower corporate tax rate, because almost no one actually pays the 35%. So people point to that, Republicans point to 35% and say that's very high by international standards, which it is. But the average tax rate is somewhere around 22%, which puts us somewhere a little below the average, and that's because of all the, 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 the loopholes. So if you came up with a plan with a 25%, maybe 28% tax rate that people would actually pay, They'd probably get a lot of support. But in any case, he's talking about 15%, which is much, much lower. But then on top of that, this is like one of the most amazing loopholes in here. We have what are referred to as pass-through corporations, where people set up corporations where the money gets passed through to them as individuals. So if I'm in the top bracket, currently 39.6%, I don't pay the corporate income tax on that. The money would just get passed on to me. A lot of uh, real estate companies like uh, Donald Trump's real estate companies are organized this way. Um, Some doctors, other professionals have corporations uh, with pass-through status. Um, Hedge funds are often operated this way. Anyhow, what he's proposed in here is that 
corporations that with pass-through status would be able to pay just a 15% tax rate, and that would be for the individuals as well. So in other words, instead of paying the 39.6% rate at present, which you propose to lower to 35, we just pay a 15% tax rate. It's an enormous loophole, um, which would mean a very large reduction in taxes for a lot of the richest people in the country. It would also encourage almost anyone with any substantial income to try to organize themselves as a, as a pass-through corporation to pay this lower tax rate. That's a big part of the story. Um, he's also proposing to get rid of the alternative income, alternative uh, minimum tax, which is something that he has paid, at least in the one tax return that we've seen in 2005. Um, again, this is, would be a big tax break for people like himself. Story with the alternative minimum tax is that you do your calculations, and this, this only affects high-income people, by the way. And if you're not paying at least, I believe it's 25%, I could be off on, uh, by a percentage point or two, you'd instead pay the alternative minimum tax. He wants to get rid of that. Again, very big tax savings for a very small number of people. And he the also, AMT is basically a, a stopgap measure just to ensure that rich people who are already exploiting tons of other loopholes don't exploit them all and pay almost nothing. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it ensures that uh, we get, again, 25%. The top bracket is 39.6%. So it's, it's a big reduction against if they were, in effect, going without loopholes and subject to the normal income tax schedules. Um, the other big uh, tax break in here is the elimination of the estate tax. Um, again, this applies to very small number of people. Basically, if you have less than 11, I forget, 10 or $11 million, it's about two-tenths of 1% are that wealthy. Um, you're, you aren't going to have to pay it. Um, but again, for billionaires, it is a big chunk of money. So again, you know, someone like uh, Trump and his family, um, that's a lot of money for them. So, so these are some of the highlights. Um, he's proposed eliminating deductions, uh, except for the mortgage interest deduction and the charitable contribution deduction and the individual income tax. It's not clear what he'd do with 401ks, retirement uh, savings deductions. Uh, his Treasury Secretary said they're out. His uh, head of National Economic Council said no, they would be included. Um, I believe he wants to leave in place the uh, deduction for uh, health care employer-provided health care insurance, even though they said uh, they're going to eliminate everything but those two. So there's a lot of things that are unclear in this. And again, I'm fine with the one-pager, but his one-pager... Um, really didn't give very much information. So we're, we're at this point, we're still very unclear about what what he intends to do as far as the full picture. And uh, I don't know if we already went over this, but he wants to um, reduce the rate on the top bracket as well, correct? Yes. Uh, he's put out the number 35%. It's currently 39.6%. There's also, a, I believe it's a 2.5% tax associated with Obamacare. It's roughly that, if that's not the exact number, um, which they had proposed to get rid of in their reform of the Affordable Care Act or repeal of the Affordable Care Act. But that all that's up for grabs at this point. So where that sits in reference to their overall tax uh, reform package, can't really say. And explain a little bit bit about what the politics of this might look like, because the reason they wanted to do health care first was so that they could get um, a big chunk of the tax cut out of the way um, with just using uh, a budget reconciliation process that wouldn't uh, require a filibuster-proof majority. But now it looks like they're going to go for uh, tax reform first. Yeah, well, tax reform they can try to do with, through reconciliation. 
and that would be filibuster proof, uh, or I mean, I mean, would not be subject to filibuster is the right term. Um, so they seem prepared to do that, whether they will be able to get their even a simple majority in the Senate, for that matter, even the House may be hard to do, because basically they, they're talking about a tax package, which will almost certainly have very little for the vast majority of the public. It's important to keep in mind, uh, most people pay little or no income tax for most people, their major tax uh, liabilities, Social Security tax. Um, but when it comes to income tax, they're they're paying little or nothing. So the idea that most people get some big boon from this doesn't make any sense. I mean, the one thing he has talked about that in principle would be a benefit to, to moderate middle-income people, I should say, is raising the standard deduction uh, from, it's currently roughly 12500 for a couple. They're talking about doubling it to 24000 So that would be a reduction in taxes uh, for, for many middle-income people. But again, we don't know what their tax rate schedule is, so it's very hard to say how much of a reduction that would be. But again, that would be something. Now, again, the flip side of this is that his his proposals almost certainly mean a very, very large increase in the deficit. The ones he was talking about in the campaign, they're using the cutoffs they had there, were raised the deficit on the order of seven trillion over the course of a decade. Um, that's a pretty large deficit, even by my standards, and I'm not by any means a deficit hawk. But that's uh, increasing the deficit on the order of uh, roughly three percent of GDP over over the course of the decade, which is a chunk of money. So um, for people who are very worried about the deficit, that would be terrifying uh, for myself. I think it's probably more than you want, um, does create problems. I won't jump on down and say it's a disaster, but certainly not good policy, particularly in the context of the main beneficiaries of this increase in the deficit are the wealthiest people in the country, and that just doesn't make any sense. What happened to the Republican article of faith that deficits posed a threat to national security? Yeah, well, um, we'll see how many Republicans believe anything like that. I mean, I think that the story we've seen again and again and again is when it comes to increasing deficits uh, for tax cuts that are directed to the wealthy, they're willing to look the other way. We saw that under Reagan. We saw that under George W. Bush. Um deficits seem not to be a problem if you're giving money to wealthy people. They only seem to be a big issue when you're talking about things like providing people with health care, um, providing uh, housing assistance, uh, raising the income of those at the bottom. That's when uh, that's when deficits seem troubling to them. Tell me a little bit about how Republicans weaponized, and not just Republicans, but a lot of establishment economic figures across the board weaponized deficits under the Obama administration. Well, the deficit did explode, um, but it really it predated Obama. I mean, this is a, really a question of political debate. The deficit exploded in 2008 because the economy collapsed. So we we saw you know the collapse of the housing bubble. The economy was in a full full scale tailspin. We we're losing seven eight hundred thousand jobs a month at the end of 2008 and the first couple months of uh, President Obama's term. And that leads to a very large rise in the deficit because tax collections plummet. And insofar as we have programs like unemployment insurance, food stamps that respond to uh, people losing income, those go up as well. And, of course, we had the bailouts, the the bailout of the the TARP and uh, Fannie and Freddie Mac, which also added to the deficit. So we saw a huge increase in the deficit. And that became this uh, point of catastrophe for you know, large segments of, of, you know, not just the Republicans, but really the mainstream media. 
And we we got what turned out to be one of the great hoaxes. I mean, I don't think they did it as a hoax, but it resulted in being a hoax in in economic research when two uh, Harvard economists, uh, uh, Carmen Reinhardt and (laughs) Rogoff, um, produced this paper uh, that showed that you had much slower growth if the debt-to-GDP ratio exceeded 90%. And this was hugely circulated, hugely influential. I mean, it was in our debate, it was in European debates. I mean, it really made it all around the world because, you know, this is quite a startling finding that growth plummets when you have uh, exceed this 90% debt-to-GDP threshold. U.S. was below that. We are in the mid-70s, but you could easily draw a line saying, okay, if we continue on this course... In three, We're close four, to serious years. trouble. Yeah, yeah. And the result of that was you got this frenzy, oh, we have to reduce the deficit. And what that meant was we had to curtail the stimulus. So President Obama had a stimulus, which I and others argued at the time was too small in 2009. But in any case, it was a foot in the door, and it certainly helped create jobs, boost growth. I mean, it was a good thing, just not big enough, not long enough. But in any case, because of this uh, hysteria about deficits, they said, okay, we got to reduce the budget deficit, get it down. And beginning in 2011, you saw a sharp turn to austerity. That was in the U.S. You saw it even more so in Europe. And it had the effect of slowing growth and preventing people from getting jobs. And the the, the two parts of the story that you know I'd point to is, one is because of we've had this slow growth, we've had a permanent reduction in the economy's uh, potential, potential GDP. That's not my assessment. That's the Congressional Budget Office's assessment. And if you look at where they put potential GDP for 2017 now, compared to where they projected we would be a decade ago, we've lost about 10% of GDP. That's about $2 trillion in annual output, or you know, 6000 a person. I call that the austerity tax, because a lot of these guys, the, the deficit people say, oh, we should think about our kids. What are we doing to our kids? We might have to raise their taxes. We did raise their taxes um, with their austerity, because the economy's much smaller. We didn't build the capital, the infrastructure that we would have otherwise. People lost skills. We're a much less productive economy because of their austerity. That's a huge price to pay. Um, it swamps the idea that, oh, my God, somewhere down the road, we're going to have to raise uh, taxes by one or two percentage points. I mean, this is way, way more, you know, an order of magnitude larger. The other point was the 90 percent debt to GDP ratio story turned out to be a mistake. Um, they, you know, they had done their calculations quickly. And uh, it was reviewed by uh, some economists at the University of Massachusetts. In fact, a grad student. Grad student. <laughs> yeah, and he couldn't reproduce their numbers, and he sent a note to, to Carmen Reinhardt, and she said, well, here's my spreadsheet. You, you, know, you figure it out. And he looked at it, and he realized she had made a calculation error. Um, and when you did the calculation correctly, the 90% threshold disappeared. Um, so this was truly remarkable. Here you had this paper that had influence on policy all over the world and was driven by an Excel spreadsheet error. Basically, um, you know, again, I'm sure it was honest, you know, but she never bothered to check her, her calculation, even though this paper was the basis for policy in Europe and the U.S., uh, Japan, um, and it just turned out to be wrong. When you did write that there's no story there whatsoever. Austerity does not stand up to peer review, it turns out. Um so um, how do you see this now that uh, Republicans and uh, mainstream uh, establishment political figures of, of various stripes have made, have represented de- deficits as this threat to national security? How are they going to respond to a Trump tax plan that's going to blow a huge hole in it? It's a really good question. Um 
I expect that they'll downplay it. I mean, they're, what, what we're likely to see, what we're hearing from the Trump administration, they're saying things like, we're going to get enough growth so that it won't, uh, it won't increase the deficit. The growth will pay for it. No, it's not a serious proposition. I mean, you, you This really, is the Laffer curve. The Laffer curve, yeah. And, th- you know, this is a heavily researched topic. Well, of course, we actually tried it twice. I mean, you don't ordinarily get the opportunity to experiment with the whole U.S. economy. But we did do this experiment. We did it under President Reagan. We did it under George W. Bush. And nothing close to that story happened. And in addition, there's a lot of other research that's been done. Uh, what I like to cite, there was an analysis that was done by the Congressional Budget Office when Douglas Holtz-Eakin was, was the head of it. And uh, Holtz-Eakin's a conservative Republican. So he's, he's the, he was, in fact, uh, George W. Bush's chief economist before he was at the Congressional Budget Office. And found that even in the most optimistic scenario, you can maybe talk about 10 or 15 percent of the, the revenue loss being replaced due to growth. So there just isn't a plausible story you could tell. But we we're in a country where we're supposed to consider global warming a debatable issue because you have Republicans who want to say it's not happening. So what I suspect what we're going to see is we're going to have Republicans insisting, oh, we're going to have growth, even though, well, who knows what they know, but even though it's utter nonsense. And then we'll have a lot of the, the, the news outlets going, well, you know, the, the Republicans say we'll do it with growth. Democrats dispute that. And, you know, what's a, what's a person to think? Who knows? Um, so that's my guess how it will play out. Now, who wins the debate in terms of what they're able to pass through Congress, we'll have to see. But I think that's how it's going to be covered. It's kind of this he said, she said story. Is it possible that some um, Republicans are so sincere about the deficit issue that they might fight the proposal? Well, that's a good question. Obviously, most of them are not. The question is whether there's a small enough group, because their their majorities aren't that large, particularly in the Senate, where they just have three votes to spare. Um, but even in the House, their majorities aren't that large, that if you have just a fraction of them split, uh, splitting off, saying, you know, we do care about the deficit and we don't believe your story that we're going to have enough growth, um, then they can't get through. Um, then they're in a situation where presumably they have to negotiate with the Democrats. And for now, at least, uh, it seems as though the Democrats have a united front. Uh, Schumer, the majority leader, uh, minority leader in the Senate, has said that they're not going to talk about tax reform until Trump releases his tax returns, which it seems he's not going to do. So if that, if he can keep the party united behind that position, that means no Democratic votes. So even a small number of Republicans breaking off could could stifle this. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the Dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the sh- show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, to support the show, go to patreon.com and look up the Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. What interests in ideological currents on the right does um, Trump's proposal or sheet of bullet points represent, and how does it fit into the larger conservative agenda on taxes? Is this pretty boilerplate? I mean, the House, House Republicans did have something pretty different that they had put forward a tax on imports, which Trump seems to have shot down. Yeah, well, I think this is a story about giving as much money as possible to the rich, um, and that that I think is basically the Republicans' underlying agenda. Um, you know, they 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 seem to have no qualms about any way that you could find to give rich people more money. And uh, I'm saying that 
in all sincerity, I mean, you look at some of the things that have been in Trump's uh, executive orders, uh, for example, they actually, it's interesting that this one is an executive order that I'm going to cite. This was actually a measure from Congress where they were overturning a regulation that would have allowed, uh, cities that they may well do this as states, but, uh, cities to, to have retirement accounts that individuals would be able to contribute to. And the idea is this would save them money and they're not forced to, this would be an option. And, they the the Republicans uh, voted in House and Senate to overturn that that regulation. It's put in place uh, an ERISA regulation put in place by the Obama administration. The only thing that does is mean more money to the financial industry at the cost of individuals who are doing what the Republicans always say they should do, trying to save money for retirement. Um, it's hard to see an ideology there other than giving more money to the financial industry. Um, one of Trump's uh, regulatory moves, he overturned a requirement put in place by the Obama administration that mountaintop mining, if you did mountaintop mining, that you had to basically clean up after yourself. Well, that's not private property. I mean, that's saying that I get to throw my sewage on your lawn. Uh, that's got nothing to do with private property. That's just saying, okay, we have these mountain, these mining companies, and they feel like destroying the environment, and you know they don't care that they destroy other people's property, other people's livelihood. That's that they they get to do that. So I don't. I think the ideology here is give money to rich people, and that seems to be uh, both uh, in uh, Congress and and the White House. Now you mentioned the border adjustment tax. Um, I think part of that was that that would have. Um, raised money. I mean, it would have been closer to, it was a tax reform, corporate tax reform that would have been closer to deficit neutral. So if you were concerned about reducing corporate taxes in a way that didn't hugely increase the deficit, that was a way to do it. Um, And clearly Trump isn't interested in that. Well, it also would have pit various business interests against that are at the that are key Republican constituencies against each other, which would have made for a nasty political fight. Whereas what Trump's inside the Republican coalition, whereas what Trump's proposing is lots of money for all sorts of rich people, which should unite them. That's right. I mean, the the getting a border adjustment tax does mean some people gain and some people lose in the big tax cut story. It's just you know we give money to to all the rich people. Um, So what is the tax plan, ideally, that the left should be fighting for? Well, I'll mention a couple things. I mean, one is that I think uh, reform of the corporate income tax does make sense. And the big issue here, and I think this hasn't got enough attention, the tax avoidance industry is huge, and it's hugely regressive. So it's not just that it's economically inefficient, which it is. I mean, if people are paying money to to relocate their profits in Ireland, I mean, just bookkeeping, you know, well, the people getting that money are overwhelmingly high-income people, and that's not a good thing. Um, the private equity industry, where you have a lot of the very richest people in the country, that to a very large extent is a tax avoidance industry. So if we could put these guys out of business, that would be a real good thing, both from the standpoint of economic efficiency, but also inequality. Um, so a tax reform that re- reduces the opportunities for tax avoidance, and this is really at the corporate level, much more so on the individual level, that's a really great thing. My own slot on this uh 
is just have a story where you, you require companies to give a portion of their stock, non-voting, so I'm not talking about uh, socialism, this is not, at least not as we would ordinarily think of it, um, a portion of their stock uh, to, to the government, and the stock would be treated the same way as their, their normal shares. So if you pay a $2 dividend to your normal shares, you pay a $2 dividend to the government shares. If you buy back 10% of the normal shares at $100 each, you buy 10, 10% of the government shares at $100 each. That, to my view, is a way pretty hard to to have tax avoidance, um, make it much more efficient, and ensures the government gets its stake. So, um, to my view, that makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, we get our money, and we get rid of the tax avoidance industry. Uh, the other really big tax reform, or I consider a big tax reform, that I'd love to see uh, financial transactions tax. And the big thing here is this this downsizes the financial industry. A lot of people, including a lot of people who advocate the tax, I think, don't fully appreciate it. The research shows that basically a financial transactions tax would be fully borne by the financial industry. What it means is, let's say we doubled the cost of a trade, which, uh, you know, in things I've written on it, I consider that reasonable target. So it would cost me, the tax would be equal to current trading costs. So we double the cost of the trade. Well, research shows that trading volume would fall by roughly 50%. So what that means is if I'm paying twice as much on each trade, but trading volumes fall by 50%, I'm paying just as much on trades as I did before, which, you know, as, a, as an investor, I have a 401k. That's what I care about. I couldn't care less how many trades I do. And the point I make about this is on aggregate, trading's a wash that, you know, I might win on it. Maybe I happen to sell my stock at a good time and I sell it to you and you lose because you happen to buy it at the absolute high. But on average, it's a wash, um, at least in general. I mean, I can give you a story where, you know, it could be other than a wash, but I think it's hard to tell that story. So if we could reduce trading volume by 50%, we, we've taken a huge amount of money, say 100 to $150 billion, away from the financial industry, which is, again, a source of you know many of the highest incomes in the country. And basically, we've done it by eliminating waste because that those trades weren't doing anything for the economy. So and those would, are, reducing, would reducing the trading volume um, reduce risk as well? It could reduce risk. I, what I generally say is I, I think it would be roughly neutral because I could tell you stories both where it would increase risk. I could mm-hmm. tell you stories where it would reduce risk. The point that people on the other side say is that you would have more volatility, and in a very, very narrow sense, that's true. So what they mean by volatility is, let's say, over the course of a day, uh, a widely traded stock, say General Electric or Microsoft, might currently move up and down by a quarter percentage point. I don't know if that's the actual number, but let's let's say it is. Now, suppose we had less trading. We had my tax put in place. Well, then instead of going up and down by a quarter percentage point, it might on average a typical day go up by four-tenths, three-tenths or four-tenths of a percentage point. Well, that is increasing the volatility, but I would say that's in a way that almost none of us would care about. So if I've had my Microsoft stock for 20 years, I ran the risk previously that I get it at the, sell it at the low point of the day and lose a quarter of a percentage point. Now I sell it at the low point of the day and I might lose four-tenths of a percentage point. I think most people would say that's pretty trivial because, of course, the opposite's true as well. I might happen to sell it above the true value by four-tenths of a percentage point. So I don't think that's the sort of risk anyone really gives a damn about. So in that sense, it could increase volatility, could increase risk, but I think in a rather trivial way. The possibility, and again, I'll just say it's a possibility, that it could reduce risk in, in, in a good way is that there's evidence that we see herd behavior in financial markets so that you see 
um, everyone's dumping a uh, stock or uh, bonds or you know some asset because they've decided it's a bad. Uh, the price is going down, so they're all dumping it. So they've not done their independent analysis. They just see everyone's dumping it. I should do it too. Well, if you have a tax that makes it a little more costly to do that, you may prevent those sorts of stampedes from forming. So I'm not going to say that a transactions tax of you know two tenths of a percent or so on uh, on, on shares of stock. Um, are, is going to prevent that. But I think it's at least a possibility. So I would hold that out there again. I wouldn't say that's a main reason to support it, but you know we have seen stampedes like that. And you know we've, we've seen crashes and uh, bubbles um, in the last two decades. Would this be a factor reducing the probability? It could be, but I, w- I wouldn't hold out a lot of stock in that. Even more centrist in establishment Democrats, it's long been one of their central talking points that Republican tax cuts favor the rich at the expense of everyone else. Is there a way that the tax, the tax, the the, the lefty tax plan that you're talking about could be framed by left populist politicians like Bernie Sanders in a way that really expands the debate beyond where it is now, the way that, say, the call for free higher education did during the last primary? Well, I can't say what will sell that much. I mean, I, I think the idea of financial transactions tax, which she actually had proposed as a way to uh, to, to finance a free college, um, I think that can have a lot of people. People are resentful of Wall Street. And to my view, I think what really kind of ices the cake is is that it's not just whacking Wall Street for the sake of whacking Wall Street. This is a source of inefficiency in the economy. And I've had a lot of economists really stumble over themselves trying to justify the amount of trading and try and say how this would be bad. And uh, frankly, I don't think they have anything resembling a case. So I think the idea that we could do something good, like have free college, and we could pay for that with the financial transactions tax that just reduces waste in the financial sector, I think that's probably a pretty good sell. But needless to say, these guys uh, have a lot of money, and they will scare the shit out of people. So they're saying, oh, this is going to be coming after your 401k. I mean, I've already seen this. So it would be coming after pensions. And both those are basically lies since the point that I just made was that from from the standpoint of 401k or pension, we care about trading costs. I mean, no one in their right mind could care less whether they had uh, $300 deducted from their 401k to pay taxes to the government or they had $300 deducted from their 401k to pay the trading cost of Wall Street. Uh, we care about the cost. That's the bottom line. And the reality is that that's not going to go up with the tax because, again, a lot of research shows that trading volume will fall roughly in proportion, possibly more than proportion, to the the size of the tax increase. So I think that's a potential winner. Um, The corporate income tax proposal, that's a real nerdy thing. So, I mean, the question is, you know, how do you sell this as, you know, look, we want to get the money from the corporations. We want to crack down on the tax avoidance industry. I mean, people don't like what's going on there, but are they going to follow things closely enough to say, okay, you know, here's a way around it? I mean, one of the things I've proposed with that is you could actually do it as a voluntary proposition where you tell companies, give us 25% of your stock. Whether that's the right number or not, we could argue, but we'll just say, give us an amount of shares equal to 25% of your stock. You never have to pay income tax again. Well, there's some number of companies that actually are paying more than that in taxes today. And the idea of getting a somewhat lower tax burden and not having to deal at all with with the accounting issues associated with their taxes, that would be a good deal. So if you get a foot in the door that way, then I think it might be a way to to implement it more generally because then you could have people asking, you know, how come my company isn't doing that? And you could envision, uh, you know, pension 
funds, university endowments, uh, putting some pressure on companies. Well, why don't you take this deal? You know, what are you what are you hiding? Um, so, so I th- I think there are ways to get there, but it's not going to be easy. Um, just to uh, circle back before we finish up, it seems with Trump's tax plan that it's really a reminder that for all of the ways in which he is idio- maybe idiosyncratically bizarre or personally odious, that a lot of his agenda, especially on economics, has been pretty boilerplate Republican class warfare from above. Yeah, it's been incredible because here's this guy who's contradictory on the one hand that he made all these populist pledges. He talked about draining the swamp, uh, meaning going after lobbyists. <laughs> um, he said he was going to beat up the pharmaceutical industry. He was going to um, uh, beat up China on currency. And he abandons everything as soon as he gets in office and everything's for the benefits of the rich. So insofar as he had a populist side to him, uh, that's disappeared very quickly. And basically all we're seeing from Trump is the same thing that a very conventional Republican would say, except maybe more so in the sense that he doesn't even care about the image. So here it is. He brings in all these people from Goldman Sachs for top economic positions. He has his kids standing along the right side of him as he's negotiating with uh, heads of state. I mean, one of the amazing stories uh, I just wrote about today, um, he abandons currency with China. was a big issue. He ran around the country. I'm going to beat up China. You know, they, they don't, uh, they rip us off currency manipulators. We had stupid negotiators. He meets with uh, President Xi and he says, well, you know, he's helping us on North Korea. Why would I talk about currency? Well, while he's doing that, his daughter gets all these trademarks issued from China, which are incredibly valuable. Um, so this is the sort of thing your run-of-the-mill Republican would have a little more sense, like, that looks kind of bad. I probably shouldn't do it. But with Trump, he, he just doesn't even care. So I think it's your normal Republican uh, plus uh, an extra dose of corruption. Dean Baker, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. Dean Baker is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and leave us a glowing review on iTunes. Those reviews do help introduce us to new listeners, and some of them are really funny. So does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.